Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is, uh, we're going to focus in on 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. And let's begin by reading this passage together in its context, starting in verse 1 and continuing all the way through the end of chapter 3. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I have fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and your Christ's. And Christ is God's. In my home, we have five young children. <clears throat> and as is the case with a lot of homes with young children, uh, this means that many nights before our children go to bed, we read them a bedtime story. Uh, we don't necessarily do it every night. And there are some times during the year that we do it more frequently than others. It all sort of depends on our schedule, uh, what's going on in our lives at the moment. But all in all, it's been a fairly consistent part of our family rhythm over the years. And again, as you can imagine, over time, our children have developed their own set of favorite bedtime stories. There's the classics like Scruffy the Tugboat and the Little Red Caboose. There's uh, the Mercy Watson series. My wife and I are particularly uh, like one book called A Home for Bird. 
And then, of course, there's Dr. Seuss. Green eggs and ham, the cat in the hat, fox in socks. Uh, the kids like pretty much all of them. One particular favorite is called the Sneetches. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. I don't uh, personally recall reading it when I was a child, but my kids have really taken a liking to it. Uh, they'll often ask me to read it to them during bedtime. It's a story about these creatures that sort of look like a cross between a goose and a penguin, uh, and they're called Sneetches. There are two kinds of Sneetches you soon learn. To quote the opening lines, now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon dars. That's the only difference between these two kinds of Sneetches. One group has a star on their belly and the other doesn't. And as the story continues, those stars weren't so big, they were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all, but because they had stars, all the star-bellied Sneetches would brag, we're the best kind of Sneetch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they'd sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with that plain belly sword. You soon discover that this very little distinction actually causes quite a bit of trouble for the Sneetches, especially for those plain belly ones. The star belly Sneetches ignore them in public. Uh, their children refuse to acknowledge the plain belly children. When the star belly Sneetches have their Frankfurter roasts on their beaches, they intentionally exclude the plain belly Sneetches. And then in the midst of all this, this con man shows up by the name of Sylvester McMonkey, or Syl yeah, that is right, McMonkey, I'm saying that right, Sylvester McMonkey McBean. He approaches the plain belly Sneetches and he tells them that he can help them. He's built a machine that can put stars on their bellies. You want stars like a star belly Sneetch, he asked. My friends, you can have them for $3 each. Of course, the plain belly Sneetches quickly agree. They pay McBean. They run through the machine. And then they run over to the star belly Sneetches and they declare, we're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all just the same now, you studio old smarties. And now we can go to your Frankfurter parties. The star belly Sneetches are devastated. Of course, the problem was never simply that plain belly Sneetches lacked a star. It's that the star belly Sneetches wanted to feel good about themselves by looking down on the plain belly Sneetch. But how could that happen now? They didn't have any way to distinguish them. And so McBean slides, all, uh, slides away, his way over and he says with a wink, things are not quite as bad as you think. And he tells them that he's also built a star off machine. And he declares, I'll make you again the best Sneetches on beaches. All it will cost you is $10 eaches. And then he runs them through his star off machine. And then from there, the, the story just descends into chaos. The plain belly Sneetches go through the star off machine again. The star belly Sneetches go back into the star on machine. And they're kind of going around real quickly here. Money's flying everywhere. And before you know it, it's all happening so quickly, they can't remember who had a star when it all began and who didn't. And then they run out of money. And they can't pay McBean anymore. You have some star belly Sneetches without stars. You have some plain belly Sneetches with stars. And McBean leaves laughing. They never will learn, no, you can't teach a Sneetch. All in all, the story is a very simple way 
to illustrate the error of both prejudice and pride to young children. Unfortunately, though, it's not uncommon for the church to act like a bunch of sneeches. There'll be these divisions that arise in the body of Christ where one group of people thinks themselves superior to another. A kind of competition will sometimes occur where one Christian will try to show themselves superior to another. And just like in this story, when this happens, the problem isn't actually external. It isn't that one group actually is inferior to another. No, the problem's internal. It's in the church's perception. It's in their desire to distinguish themselves, to prove that they're superior to the rest. It's in their pride. Pride is a tremendous snare to the church. To quote Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is just an incredibly dangerous sin on a number of different levels. And one such way is how it inhibits the church's ability to learn. Of course, learning is critical to the spiritual health of a church. This isn't to say that learning is synonymous with church growth, spiritual growth, and yet, at the same time, neither can spiritual growth occur without it. The Christian may be indwelt by the Spirit of God when they come to the faith, and this Spirit may transform the Christian to begin to love the things of God. The problem, though, is that they're still largely ignorant to the things of God without instruction. They may be inclined to love God, but they still don't exactly know who He is yet. They have years, sometimes even decades, of idolatrous thinking about God that needs to be first torn down and then reconstructed before they can begin to acknowledge and worship God as He truly is. And the problem with pride is that it disrupts this learning process. To quote Proverbs once again, this time chapter 11, verse 2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The proud don't become wise, and the reason they don't become wise is because they already think they know everything. Humility is a prerequisite for the learning process, because in order to learn, the student must at least begin with the assumption that they at least know less than the teacher. The proud is too arrogant to begin with this assumption, and so he can't learn. This means that when the church begins exhibiting signs of pride, such as occurs... When you see divisions and rivalries taking place in the body of Christ, then that church is in a spiritually precarious position. There's one more way that pride is particularly dangerous to the health of a body. And that's in the fact that pride inhibits the fear of the Lord. Going back to this idea of learning once again, of growth, of understanding, of wisdom, the, the scripture observes the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. God is the creator of this world. He knows all things. Not only that, but He is all-powerful. And this means that He is not only the very embodiment of wisdom and understanding, but it also behooves oneself to be in His good graces, since He possesses the power both to lay low and to rise up, both to give life and to take it. So if one wants to become wise, then this is where they'll begin, by learning the fear of the Lord. 
The problem, once again, is that not only does this require a level of humility to recognize one's weaknesses, ignorance, and even sinfulness before the presence of God, but also the world at large actually rejects this kind of knowledge. Psalm 53 tells us that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand who seek after God. It says they've all fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. This is the state of mankind since the fall. In his sinfulness, man rejects God. He rejects the fear of the Lord. And the result, in the words of Romans 1.21, is that man's foolish hearts are darkened. That's a problem. Because as Paul goes on to explain right there in Romans 1, the outcome of all this is that not only does the vast majority of mankind reject the fear of the Lord, but in their desire to silence their conscience and in their great pride, they not only reject God personally, but according to Romans 1.32, they give hearty approval to those who do likewise. In other words, if pride is what's motivating you, then you probably aren't going to learn the fear of the Lord. Because you're not going to be praised for that sort of thing by the vast, vast majority of people. Instead, they're going to reject that kind of thinking as nonsense. They're going to regard it as utter foolishness. Uh, this has been one of Paul's points quite recently in this letter. The message of the cross, the standard of living that flows out of this message, these are things that the world regards as foolish. You're never going to gain respect by adhering to that kind of wisdom. So pride is going to hinder a person from growing in the fear of the Lord. In fact, if I could take it even a step further, there's a sense in which pride is itself a reflection of a very worldly mindset. We actually talked about this last week while we were in Matthew 18. If you recall, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, who among us is the greatest? And Jesus answers them by setting a child in front of them and saying, you have to be like this to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus said that, he was reminding the disciples that it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom. It's those who mourn who shall be comforted, the meek who shall inherit the earth. In order for a person to even become a Christian, they must first recognize their own unworthiness before God, their inability, their dishonor and disrepute. In other words, to even become a Christian, a person must first become humble. They must first abandon their pride. So when you see divisions taking place in the church, when you see Christians competing with each other, what you're seeing is a church that doesn't fear the Lord. You're seeing a church that has forgotten who they are. They've forgotten the gospel. And this is the point that Paul is currently making as we come to this morning's passage. As I've pointed out uh, several times over the past few weeks, Paul writes this letter in response to some questions that the Corinthians have about the proper way to apply their faith. Uh, Paul has been out of the region for some time, and it would appear that in the interim some issues have arisen in the church, which the Corinthians are not entirely sure how to resolve. Paul is writing to answer these questions. However, the problem is that he's gotten this report from Chloe's people that there are divisions taking place in the church. And at least one of the factors at play in these divisions is a perceived inferiority in Paul's ministry. I don't want to say that this is the cause for these divisions because 
Paul actually makes it very clear his ministry is not actually inferior. It's only perceived that way. And the reason why it's perceived that way is because the Corinthians' uh, worldliness and pride. The Corinthians are seeking a wisdom that's respectable to the world, and that's not the kind of wisdom that Paul has to offer. And so they think his ministry is inferior, even though it's actually not inferior. Uh, this is obviously going to hinder Paul's ability to speak into these situations that he's asking them about and, and answer them with any kind of authority. Again, they're proud, and so they're not teachable. This means that before Paul can address these concerns, he first needs to defend his ministry, which he does in two ways. First, he reminds them just exactly what we were talking about a moment ago, and that's the fact that God's wisdom is going to be rejected by the world. And so if they think Paul's ministry is inferior because it doesn't measure up to the world's standards and win their approval, then they've got it all wrong. This isn't how wisdom works. God's wisdom is contrary to human expectation, and God has done it this way in order to shame the wisdom of the wise. Then second, he informs the Corinthians that there actually was a kind of wisdom that he had to offer them. The problem, though, was that they weren't ready for it. And in fact, it would appear that they're still not ready for it. And this is demonstrated by the fact that there are these rivalries taking place among them. Chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He then goes on to explain that the only way a person can discern this wisdom is if they have the spirit of God. The, the natural man, he says, cannot accept it. This is ultimately why the world rejects his wisdom. They lack the spirit of God. And then here, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. He says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. The problem is that you aren't mature. Instead, you're thinking and acting like little Christian babies. It's as if you still haven't received the Spirit of God. He says, you aren't ready to receive this, this advanced doctrine I have to offer. And he continues, and even now you're not ready. You're still the flesh. Even now, after all this time that I've been away, even now you can't receive the full scope of what I have to offer. He says, you're still acting like little Christian children who needs their mama to come and nurse them instead of eating solid food. You're acting like people who lack the spirit of God. And again, what's the sign of all of this? How does Paul know this, that they're acting in this immaturity? Continuing in verse 3, he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? Verse 4, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? This is why Paul can't teach them. It's why they think his ministry is inferior. Why they're probably going to question the answers that he's about to offer them. It's because they're proud. They're arrogant. They're seeking praise from men. And this not only means that they're not teachable, but it's also indicative of the, of the fact that they're still susceptible to a very worldly way of thinking. It's indicative of the, of the fact that they do not yet know the fear of the Lord. That they're still given to other worldly priorities. That they're still thinking like the natural man. 
Paul can't tell them what he has to offer because they're thinking just like the world. And that's going to mean only one thing. And that's that when he offers this wisdom to them, they're going to treat it the same way the world treats it. They're going to laugh at him. They're not ready to receive this yet. And all of this is indicated once again by their divisions, by the distinctions that they're making amongst themselves. So what's so unchristian about competitiveness? How is competition in the church evidence to the fact that a body of believers is thinking in a merely human way? This is a question that we're exploring now in week two of this text. Paul gives us four reasons in this chapter why competition is a sign of a merely human church, of a church that is thinking in a very natural way. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first of these reasons together. And we said it's because one of the reasons is because a competitive spirit forgets who builds the church. A competitive spirit forgets who builds the church. Basically, a competitive spirit is merely human in the sense that it acts as if man builds the church, not God. This morning, I want us to continue, continue with the next of these four reasons and that's this. Number two, competition in the body of Christ indicates a merely human way of thinking. Again, number two, because a competitive spirit forgets on whom the church is built. So again, it forgets who builds the church and it forgets on whom the church is built. We see this in verses 10 through 11. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Of all the points in this chapter, this is the one that goes back most strongly to the beginning of this particular section of 1 Corinthians. Back in chapter 1, Paul began this particular unit by exhorting the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. He continues explaining, verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What, is, what I mean is this, <clears throat> each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Again, that's the first issue that Paul addresses in this letter, the division that's occurring in Corinth. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that's going to be a recurring theme throughout this letter, worldliness and its product, which is this rivalry, this rejection of biblical authority, and, and even outright sin. These are all veins that run through the entire body of this letter. If you recall, I said back when we were in chapter 1 that these divisions, this quarreling that Paul is talking about, they don't appear to be divisions in the sense that you and I tend to think of divisions. There is a kind of contention taking place in the church, but it doesn't appear as, as if this contention is resulting in any kind of actual fracture within the church. They're fighting each other, but they're doing so as one body, actually. They're bickering. There are most definitely factions. But you wouldn't say that this is, is exactly a divided church. There's no indication of this in this letter. In, in fact, perhaps the clearest example of this fact 
occurs in chapter 11, where we discover that they're even making distinctions among each other as they celebrate the Lord's table together, thus violating the meaning and intent of the table and inviting the discipline of God. So it seems as if these are not so much divisions that are taking place in the church as much as they are rivalries. The church is competing with each other to see who among them is the greatest in the church. And as I mentioned at that time, one of the operative principles in these rivalries is this apparent belief that there are these various schools of thought within Christianity, each with its own set of advantages and disadvantages. If you're uh, at all familiar with Catholicism, for instance, uh, just as the Catholic Church has these various religious orders, you know, you have the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Augustinians, each of which are modeled after the particular emphases and teachings of their founder, and yet all within the singular entity called the Roman Catholic Church. So also were the Corinthians acting as if there are these various schools of thought or philosophy within Christianity, all of which are equally valid in a sense. They weren't saying that Apollos was correct in opposition to Paul, that Apollos was right and Paul was wrong, as if they each represented two contradictory sets of truths. Instead, they were saying they each had their own way of doing things with their various strengths and weaknesses. Essentially, they were operating with the principle that there actually wasn't one right way of doing things, that in a sense, neither way of thinking was right, neither approach to ministry was necessarily true. It was more a matter of opinion or technique. It was a matter of preference. And then they were choosing to align with one school or another according to whichever one they believed had the best set of advantages. They would all say that they're still Christians and they're within the, the faith. They're just adhering to these various systems of thought, these various philosophies that they think exist within Christianity. Back then, Paul answered these rivalries by asking rhetorically, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He points them to the fact that Christ alone is responsible for their salvation, that he alone is the authority over the church. I, I think the, the reference to baptism actually is supposed to reference the fact that Christ alone is responsible for the gifts that the Corinthians seem so eager to boast in. Basically, he says Christ is responsible for everything. And that seems to be the same idea that Paul is returning to here as well. There is this jealousy and strife going on in the church. And Paul reminds him that such thinking is fleshly, verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is one reason why a competitive spirit in the body of Christ indicates a worldly or merely human way of thinking. The one who competes with their brother or sister in the church, and on a spiritual level, most especially, they forget on whom the church is built. Just like you can have many rooms within the same building, but you wouldn't say that they belong to different structures because they all still share the same foundation. So also the church has only one foundation, which means that it's a single structure, not many. When one begins to make these distinctions in the body of Christ, as if some are better and others worse, they forget this point. They forget that, to borrow Paul's words from chapter 12 of this same letter, 
They forget that they're all members of one another. That they're all one unit, occupying different roles within the same structure. It's like I said in our last passage, just because we play different positions doesn't mean that we aren't still on the same team. This was the point that Paul was making up in verses 5 through 9. He and Apollos might have done things differently, but that didn't mean that they were competing against each other. Instead, they were occupying different roles in the same growing process. Just different, you know, they were doing different positions on the same team. The church that is actually competing against each other is obviously forgetting this point. They're forgetting that the opponent is out there, not in here. So again, competition is a sign of an unreformed frame of mind. The one who competes with his or her brother or sister is not thinking according to the wisdom given them through the Spirit. They're not thinking according to the foundational reality of the cross, of the gospel. Instead, they're thinking according to the customs and values of this world, the customs and values of a world which does not acknowledge either the salvation or the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Now, that said, such behavior, I think it's important to note here, such behavior is not only indicative of a merely human way of thinking, it's also predictive. It also causes or produces a merely human way of thinking. And I want you to notice this because I think this is really the point that Paul is driving at by this point of this particular passage. He's not just explaining how this thinking demonstrates that a person is thinking in a merely human way. He's actually issuing a warning about what this kind of thinking leads to. He's issuing a warning about what it produces. And what it produces is also a very worldly way of thinking. So it not only indicates a worldly way of thinking, but it actually produces a worldly way of thinking as well. And again, I think at this point, that's Paul's main thrust. If you notice here, Paul isn't just talking about salvation in this passage. He observes, verse 11, verse 11 that no one can build on a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, you could say that that part of this discussion is about salvation. Paul is saying that there's only one foundation to build on, and the implication is that to build on anything else is to be outside the faith. I think we could all agree with that, right? To build on a foundation other than Christ is to build on a foundation that's outside the faith. But that said, that's not really Paul's point here. To warn the Corinthians about uh, building on a foundation other than Christ. Instead, the foundation is more or less assumed. And Paul is actually warning them about how they build on top of it. Do you guys see that? Verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. This same warning continues down in verses 12 through 13. Paul says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What Paul is talking about here are, are men like Apollos. Verses 5 through 9, Paul observes that he planted and Apollos watered. Meaning, Apollos came along and continued working on the project that Paul began. 
And Paul is saying that such men need to be careful how they continue that work. Paul laid the foundation in Christ, and now they need to be careful how they build upon it. In other words, Paul gives this this warning in verses 12 to 15 about building with the right materials. And he says that on judgment day, each builder is going to be judged by the quality of the work. He indicates that some of the work will survive, some of it won't, because it was produced with cheaper or less durable materials. The builder will not gain or lose his salvation on the basis of the quality of this work, but he will be compensated according to the quality of this work. If you can think of it, this is less an hourly wage that an employee is receiving, and it's more of a commission. They're not getting paid simply for the amount of their labor for what they produce. And even further, it's not the volume of production that will be taken into account, but it's the quality. It's very easy to think that and suppose that what Paul is talking about here are, are converts. That that's the work that's being produced. That the scripture gives us several warnings about false conversions. Of course, Paul himself was just talking about how when he preached the gospel, he was careful not to make his appeal through plausible words of wisdom, since he wanted to ensure that his listeners' faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's very easy to take all of that and think that this is what Paul is talking about here. He's issuing a warning about those who want to cut corners for the sake of a quicker result. He's telling them, If a man builds a large but superficial church, largely populated by false converts, he's not going to be rewarded for that. He's not going to be rewarded according to the sheer number of people who respond, but only with respect to those who make a legitimate expression of faith, meaning such efforts are actually vain. They're not a sign of greatness, and they're not going to be a cause for boasting, since at Judgment Day, God will eliminate all this refuse and compensate the laborer according to what survives. Very easy to read the passage this way, and that's actually how I've often read this passage. But if you read this closely, I think you can see that that's actually not what Paul is talking about here. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about, number one, because that would be a discussion about foundations, and Paul is actually talking about structures or framework. And number two... Because in context, Paul is talking about this additional wisdom that comes to the convert on top of the gospel, not the gospel itself. That's where what started uh, this discussion back in chapter 2. And it's apparent at the beginning of chapter 3 that he's still discussing this idea here, this wisdom that he has to impart to the body of Christ. In other words, it's possible to say, it is possible to say, That Paul is talking about the fact that he founded a church on the gospel of Christ. He founded a pure church and he's warning other workers about the type of converts they continue to build that church with. He's warning them that they need to be genuine converts, not superficial ones. But I don't think that's actually what he's meaning to emphasize or stress. Neither the passage itself nor the surrounding context leads in that direction. Instead, Paul is referring to the sanctification of the believer. He's referring to that period of ongoing growth which happens after a person comes to faith in Christ. Most specifically, he's talking about the church at Corinth, which he founded upon faith in Jesus Christ, and he's warning about any potential leader in the church who would come in and then build on that foundation with inferior materials. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. 
In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says, From the beginning there have been gold Christians and wood Christians, silver churches and hay churches, precious stone endeavors and those that are straw in every degree and combination. You guys know what he's talking about there, don't you? I would imagine you've all met Christians who, it's apparent, they're real Christians. They have a very real and sincere love for Jesus. But then you listen to them talk, and there are all kinds of philosophies and attitudes that come out in their speech and their actions which are distinctly not Christian. Again, it's not to say that they're not Christians. They're just immature Christians, right? They're infants in Christ. They're little babies. And sometimes this is even after they've been in Christ for years and years. They may have even been in Christ longer than you, and yet in spite of that, their thinking is still incredibly unbiblical. And their way of life is not conformed to the image of Christ. And you think to yourself, why is that? How can someone who has such a vibrant love for Jesus still speak and act so foolishly? Well, friends, very often it's coming from their pastors. It's coming from their church leaders. You may even realize this. You know, you have this friend and again, you're wondering how it is that they're still so immature in Christ and then you go and visit church with them on Sunday and the pastor is up there quoting the latest blockbuster movie as if it actually has some kind of wisdom to offer the Christian. Listen, guys, do you know where that comes from? Do you know why the pastor is up there quoting the latest blockbuster? I'll tell you very often, it's driven by a desire to distinguish themselves. They want to be viewed as someone who's great at communication, or they want to be viewed as someone that people like listening to, and so they get up there and they tell jokes or quote movies in order to be entertaining, in order to appeal to the fleshly inclinations of their audience. Or, or maybe they don't want to be seen as a great communicator, but they want to be seen as a thought leader, as someone who's uh, particularly well-read and wise. And so they get up there and they start quoting secular concepts or philosophers to demonstrate their great knowledge. And they get up there and they start pushing the, the, the latest theological trend to show everybody that they're with it. They may even start pushing a particular political agenda, right? So that they can be seen as relevant by the world. Maybe they want to be viewed as a great leader. That means, that means they have to show they can gather a crowd. And that inevitably is going to draw them into worldly practices to one degree or another, since in that instance, they have to take it upon themselves to build the church instead of rely on the Spirit of God. Point being, the leader wants to distinguish himself. They want to set himself, he wants to set himself apart. <laughs> well, guess what, guys? You can't do that if you're saying the same thing, doing the same thing as the next guy. And so what do you have to do? You have to innovate. And when the man begins to innovate, when he begins to take steps to set himself apart, there's ultimately only one way to do it. And that's to depart from the singular message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, you're going to get up here and tell me again about how Jesus died for my sins, you're going to talk to me again about how I need to be humble, about how I need to love other people more, how I need to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Come on, heard it. I've heard all that before. Tell me something I don't know. Give me something new. That's what congregations often think. 
They're not impressed by guys like Paul. Who just get up there and in a very simple way declare, the kingdom of heaven, of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so in order to distinguish themselves, church leaders begin to innovate on that message. And the result is a congregation that may still be built on the foundation of Christ, but its framework is straw. It's worthless. That's what Paul's warning about here. He's taking a moment to address both the church leaders and the congregants and to warn them about the type of the material that the church is beginning to be built with out of this desire to compete with each other. This desire for distinction, this pride, it's not going to result in anything good for the church. It's only going to result in a greater degree of worldliness, an increase in foolish thinking. So with this in mind, I want to give you a few thoughts to consider here this morning. I mentioned at the beginning of our last message in this chapter that as I started to wrap up this sermon, uh, I began to realize that I didn't have one whole message, but half of two messages. And that's partly because as I started to work through this point, I realized that there's really just so much here to think about and to consider that I didn't want to move on to the next two points in this passage. Instead, I want to I want to slow down for a minute and help you think through the implications of this thought. With that in mind, here are a few thoughts to consider based on what we're talking about here today. And just so you know, I haven't uh, packaged these thoughts in any particular way. There isn't one theme that's running through them all, I guess you could say, other than the danger of pride in learning. Um, but other than that, they're more or less a random collection of concepts, a kind of applicational potpourri, if you will, right? So, uh, <laughs> Just breathe it in. Okay, there's not, there's not really a direction uh, to this other than that. But uh, here are some things to consider based off of what we're talking about here today. First, I want you to understand. I, I, I want us to pause and to think about this point because I want you to understand that both wisdom and foolishness are cumulative endeavors. They're cumulative this is a point that I've already alluded to a few different times over the past couple of weeks. So again, I realize I may not be telling you anything new when I say this, but I repeat it again because of its importance. You see this principle in scripture that the one who has, you see this over and over again, this principle in scripture that to the one who has, more will be given. And to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus, of course, states this principle explicitly with reference to responsibility and judgment in the parable of the talents. You see him repeat it again in John 15, 2, when he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, that, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Uh, there, the context seems to be referring more to the believer's sanctification. In other words, this is a principle that spans across more than one subject. And I think it's more than fair to say that this applies to the subject of wisdom as well. Indeed, this seems to be precisely the point of passages like Proverbs 12, 15, which states, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man listens to advice. The fool, in his ignorance and his arrogance, rejects instruction and stays in bondage to his own stupidity, while the wise man, in the wisdom of his humility, accepts instruction and grows still wiser. 
To quote Proverbs 9, 8 through 9, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will st st uh, be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. There is a cumulative effect to both wisdom and foolishness. And I say this because I think it's not uncommon for the church to adopt a somewhat lackadaisical attitude towards its interaction with worldly attitudes and philosophies. I think that grows partly out of a desire to defend Christian liberty, which uh, Paul is actually going to address later on in this letter. And, and I think perhaps it grows partly out of a desire to preserve the gospel. I've heard it said, for instance, understand that no matter how far you run from God, he's still only one step away. In fact, I think that I've uh, said that in, in probably more than one context. And, and listen, friends, that's true. From a relational perspective, God is always one step away. A sinner can turn from their sin and instantly God can be right there by their side. But what I don't want you to think is that that should be taken to mean that Christian maturity is also only, always only one step away. I think people get confused at this point. They think that sanctification and growth is more or less a matter of desire. It's a matter of willingness, of motivation. And that at any point, they can just make the decision to be righteous, and they'll be righteous right away. That's not how sanctification works. It is a process. You're constantly taking steps either towards Christian maturity or away from it. And what I want you to understand as we go through passages like this one is that when you allow the world a foothold in your thinking, when you allow the world a foothold in your thinking, you're beginning a chain reaction that is going to lead you into more and more ungodliness and sin. That's what we see taking place right here. Paul's having to warn the leaders because this pride is going to lead the church to go towards leaders that are going to feed them worldly philosophies in order to uh, distinguish themselves. Guys, you can't think when it comes to worldliness, well, it's just a little bit of worldliness. No big deal. No, to borrow another scriptural principle, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Yes, you may be free to interact with the world, but to quote the Apostle Paul again later in this letter in response to an apparent assertion by the Corinthians that all things are lawful for, to me, he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, yes, but not all things build up. You see this refrain in Scripture where God calls His people to come out and be separate. Again, this is an idea that Paul is going to touch on again with us in just a few chapters. So we'll see this come up again. Paul wants his people to separate themselves from the world and to be holy, distinct. And at least one of the reasons why he exhorts them to be this way is because of the effect that interaction with the world has on the thinking of his people. Interaction with the world corrupts their thoughts and leads them further and further into ungodliness and sin. Again, that's what you see taking place in this passage. Worldly thinking in the form of religious pluralism and in the form of competitiveness and pride, this desire to be great according to the world is leading to the development of teachers who in an effort to distinguish themselves are building a church out of hay and straw. The one error is leading to the other. So if you want to become wise, if you want to grow spiritually, then you need to cut out all attachment to the world and its wisdom. Show no quarter. A passage I've been memorizing lately is 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21. 
It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Sound familiar? There are vessels not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Christian, if you want to be useful to the master of the house, then this is what you must do. You must cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Get rid of all of it. Again, this is the first thing I want you to take away as you think about this passage. Both wisdom and foolishness are cumulative endeavors. Thoughts number two and three. I'm going to address these together. Beware the leader who exhibits signs of pride. And beware of a fascination with the new. Beware the leader who exhibits signs of pride and beware a fascination with the new. At the beginning of today's message, I mentioned this story about the Sneetches. <laughs> I do this for a couple reasons. Uh, you know, I feel sort of silly kind of talking about a children's story in the middle of a sermon as we talk about the Word of God. But one of the reasons why I do it is because I actually think it's quite fitting of this subject. I mean, a church, uh, I think, should feel a little ridiculous when we have to start talking about division in the body of Christ. Because the reality is that this is kid stuff. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to talk about this at all. To say that Christians shouldn't compete with each other is like saying, okay, children, let's take a seat while I read a wonderful story to you. It's called Green Eggs and Ham. It's the kind of stuff that a church like this one in Corinth should have grown out of years ago. So we should feel a little silly because it's silly to have to tell the church, stop competing with each other. But, you know, there's another reason I bring it up, and, and, and that's because I think this story helps illustrate in a very simple way that when pride is involved, when we decide that we want to make distinctions among ourselves, then we will very often point to distinctions that actually have no real substance. We'll even create distinctions that don't actually exist in order to prove ourselves better than others. Again, that's what the Starbelly Steeches do in the story, right? The whole idea seems sort of ludicrous to think that something as simple as a star on one's stomach would make one creature better than another. And that's what the story is supposed to illustrate. How silly this idea is. The, the, the foolishness of our prejudices. How we'll go out of our way to create distinctions with our fellow human beings, which are really incredibly superfluous, which are no distinctions at all. And that we'll do all this to feel better about ourselves. Listen, that's what the proud leader will do to distinguish himself. If a leader is seeking praise and approval from men, then he'll soon realize that he's not going to get that if he blends in with the crowd. And so he's going to do either one of two things. He'll either start making a really big deal out of what are actually very minor doctrinal issues. He'll develop an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, tell you why everyone else has it wrong in order to justify his own existence, his own worth, or he'll start to innovate and he'll lead the church away from the truth. Either way, he'll get them focusing on the minors instead of what really matters in the faith, or he'll just lead them out of the truth. Friends, when that happens, it is very easy to be tempted by these individuals and to buy into the idea that they really are brilliant. 
After all, it's just like we see in Corinth. Who doesn't like to associate with a brilliant and insightful leader? Because after all, doesn't that say something about us as well? When we happen to be their pupils? It's very easy to fall into the line of thinking that if something is new, then it must be better. Or even to simply become bored with hearing the same thing over and over again. But understand, when you fall into this line of thinking, you make yourself susceptible to the error of these kinds of individuals, these innovators who innovate for no other reason than to distinguish themselves as superior. So beware the leader who exhibits tendencies towards pride, but beware yourselves as well that you not be fascinated with the new and the innovative. And by the way, all human leaders are going to struggle with pride, right? Because they're human, they're they're sinners. So when I say this, don't think I'm saying only follow those who never exhibit any of these qualities. That would be simply impossible. Instead, I'm trying to tell you, avoid the man who seems to be unaware of these tendencies in himself. I once had a a mentor, an incredibly gifted man. And the moment I knew something was terribly wrong was the moment he called himself a visionary. I laughed, thinking he was joking, and he didn't laugh. Several innovations later... And that man is no longer in leadership today. Unfortunately, he had become unaware of his pride. And I think that's probably the main reason he's not in ministry today. Listen, I'm not joking about this. Watch out for this quality in your leaders. Beware the proud leader. He will lead you astray. Thoughts number four and number five. Again, I'm going to tackle these together. If you're naturally ambitious, recognize the danger your ambition poses to the church and run from it. Again, I'll say that one more time. This is thought number four. If you're naturally ambitious, recognize the danger your ambition poses to the church and run from it. And number five, if you happen to live with an ambitious Christian, recognize the danger their ambition poses to the church and do your best to encourage them to run from it. Again, realize the danger that this poses to the church and encourage them to run from it. I don't know how you're wired, but personally, I'm, I'm naturally ambitious. And that ambition means that I can be a pretty competitive person. If you want to get a picture of what I mean, Trevin, I hope you don't mind if I mention this story, but a few months back, Trevin and I were running a 5K together. And after the race, we were checking our times and we realized that we were the last two finishers of the men in our age group. And do you know what I texted him? No joke. I said this in all seriousness. I said, uh, sort of humbling, isn't it? But I tell myself the other guys were sitting at home, so at least I ran. I couldn't just accept the fact that I was slow. (laughs) So I created an entire group of people who didn't even race and beat them. Right? It's just a completely idiotic thing to say. But that's my ambition. That's my competitiveness coming out. Some of you are like me. You're naturally ambitious. And and if you're like me, then you need to recognize how incredibly dangerous that attitude is is to the church and do everything that you can to kill it. Again, I feel like I've been running this point to the ground, so I won't go at great lengths to say this again, but that competitiveness 
that desire to distinguish yourself is going to cause you to make a distinction between your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you'll do that sometimes for no reason at all. For example, do you know one way my competitiveness expresses itself? My wife knows it well, and she finds it incredibly frustrating. It's expressed in the statement, yeah, but. I can never just listen to someone's teaching, it seems, and hear someone make a great point and go, you know, that was excellent. What a great way of saying that. How incredibly insightful that was. Instead, it's like I always have to find something that I can disagree with. I know at least some of you know what I'm talking about. I think some of you are smiling at me because you know what I'm talking about. You do it too. And you know where that argumentative spirit is really coming from? It's coming from pride. That's where it's coming from in me. I can tell you that. It's not coming from a concern for truth. It's coming from a desire to distinguish myself, to show myself off as the smartest guy in the room. I always got to know something more than someone else. So yeah, that's true. But did you know? Friends, do you realize how dangerous that is? If that attitude goes unchecked? It means that I'll actually diminish truth or perhaps even unwittingly promote error just so I can look smart. If that's you, own it and attack that attitude in your heart because it is going to do damage to the body of Christ. And do you know how you do that, by the way? Again, I have experience with this, so I can tell you. It's partly by using your ambition as a weapon for good instead of evil and heeding what Paul is saying right here in this passage. See, you might think I'm saying that ambition's bad. I'm not, actually. You read Paul, and it's apparent that he was an incredibly ambitious Christian. The difference, though, between a guy like Paul and the Corinthians is that Paul understands this point right here in verses 12 to 15 about the kind of work that will last. He realizes that he can get all the praise from men that you could possibly imagine. He could get up there with eloquent speech, tell to preach a great sermon, have everybody praise him. But if it requires building with subpar materials to do that, then it means nothing. He'll get to judgment day and Christ is going to reject all of it. It'll all get burned up and all that work that he'll have done, that he thinks makes himself great, it'll have been for nothing. This is how I fight my competitiveness and, and hopefully keep myself grounded and rooted in the truth. I remind myself, it doesn't matter what other people say about me. If what I'm saying isn't true, then it profits me nothing. I fight ambition with ambition. And there's actually a lot more we could say at this point about the nature of these rewards, for instance, because a lot of times I think that's misunderstood here as well. But Paul doesn't address it, so we're not going to get into that. The main thing I want you to understand is to see that if, you th if you're thinking about ambition in the right way, if you're thinking about it spiritually, if you're thinking about the rewards the right way, it'll keep you grounded in the truth. If you're living with someone like me, you can also encourage them with this thought. Again, recognize that ambition actually can be a good thing. As a mentor once told me, it's easier to reign in a zealot than to resurrect a corpse. I'd rather have to deal with a spiritually ambitious man than a spiritually apathetic one any day of the week, right? Give me a Peter. Someone will stick his foot in his mouth because then I know what's going on in his head. <laughs> so zeal isn't bad, but at the same time, that ambition can be incredibly dangerous as well. It's, it's both good and bad. It's like a fire, right? You can't live without it, but if you're not careful with it, you'll burn your house down. 
That's the ambitious person. They have the potential to generate a lot of light in the body of Christ, but also a lot of heat as well. If they're not careful, their desire for distinction will lead to rivalries and division. If you're near to such a person, you can help both them and the body of Christ by calling them to refocus their ambition according to the principles you see here in this passage. That may require admonishment if they're unruly. If they're unrepentant, you may need to confront them sharply with this passage and warn them that if they build with inferior materials, then there will be no reward for their labor. If they're faint-hearted, then you may need to encourage them in the same light. You may need to remind them that when they feel like they're unsuccessful, tell them, no, remember what success looks like. Remember that the kind of reward that you should be working for is this one that you're going to receive from Christ. The type that you're seeking right now is the type that lasts. Whatever their condition, though, you can help them by reminding them that when they stand before Christ, it isn't going to be the volume of their work that matters or the, the, the praise that they've received from men, but the quality of it. Christ will reward them according to their faithfulness. So, recognize the danger your pride poses to the church. If you struggle with this, and if you live with someone who does, or near someone who does, recognize it, encourage them to run from it as well. I close this morning with a reading from 1 Corinthians 13. If you can't tell, our subject for today has been maturity. And we've been talking about how divisions in the body of Christ both indicate and predict spiritual immaturity. With that in mind, I close with this reading from 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13. And just so you know, I read it with an air of exhortation to exhort you to pursue God's wisdom, and to forsake pride and division in the body of Christ. Paul writes this, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, just as even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's make it our aim as a body to grow into the maturity that comes from and through Christian love. Let's pray.